You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. The biggest thing I learned uh, when I went to work for the Maine Women's Lobby is not to make assumptions about a person's policy positions based on the party they were in or perhaps uh, the rural or urban area they were from or even the committees that they were assigned to. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 234. First Lady, airing for the first time on Sunday, March 13th, 2016. Mary Herman is a woman of many talents. She has intersected with and supported Mainers in countless areas, including education, health, and the nonprofit world. Today, we speak with Maine's former First Lady about her experience as an advocate and how she hopes to continue her good work in the years to come. Thank you for joining us. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Apothecary by Design. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines prepared by experienced professionals with a focus on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way that it's meant to be. Experienced chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Maine's seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants, The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.theroomsportland.com. My next guest is um, someone that I consider to be somewhat of a triumph. I've been trying to get her on my show for the last four years, I believe, and she's here, so hooray. This is former First Lady Mary Herman. Mary Herman has had many community roles, teacher, special education teacher, nurse, and an advocate for women's issues and low-income families. She is currently the principal at Mary Herman Consulting, where she advises nonprofits and is especially interested in the intersection between philanthropy and the nonprofit world in Maine. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Lisa. It is nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, you are... Um, you are a busy lady. You have spent the better part of your life just going nonstop, pretty much, from what I can tell. So I think the fact that you even have a moment of breath that you can come in here and talk to us is pretty great. So I want to know a little bit about um, how it has been to simultaneously have your own identity as Mary Herman, but also the other of Angus King. So I think I might start by saying maybe a smart thing I did when I married for the first time way back in 1973 was keeping my own name. So I've always had the name Mary Herman, which is the person who grew up um, in a civic-minded family in Wisconsin and uh, 
sort of migrated east for for work and school and eventually found myself in rural Maine, which was a bit of a wake-up. I had never lived in a small rural area, but I made a great many friends when I lived in Washington County. And eventually, as you mentioned, I did go to nursing school at UMA and drifted down. So um, I I think I, w- I was raised to kind of look forward and see what I could do for the community. Well, tell me about your civic-minded family. Um, I, I very much credit my interest in the nonprofit world to my mom. I grew up in the 50s and 60s. Um, my mom was an at-home mom, but she wasn't at home that much. She was on a number of volunteer boards, and she did a lot of community volunteering. And it's fun for me to tell people who are not as old as I that um, what we now know as the United Way was, in my childhood, the Red Cross and the Red Feather. And Red Cross was community health care agencies and Red Feather was social service agencies. And I really did go door to door with my mom and her white packet of names uh, to ask for ten, fifteen, twenty dollars based on last year's contribution. And if a person donated, they got a little pin that was a Red Cross or a Red Feather. Um, and so I my many people's picture of their mom is standing at the back door with a plate of cookies. My picture of my mom is sitting at her desk on the telephone. You have this interest in health and education as well, and you've done both. What was your draw for each one of those fields? Well, I think it was actually serendipitous. When I moved to Maine in 1973, I was a teacher, and I had done also special ed, and um, there weren't any jobs at that point teaching in Washington County. I had done some volunteering at a family planning clinic when I was teaching in Washington, D.C. years earlier, so I volunteered at the local family planning clinic in Callis, Maine, um, and that eventually morphed or evolved into what had been a volunteer position with a part-time clinic into a full-time clinic, and I worked myself into a job. And um, I found myself advising the physicians based on what I was reading in the technology magazines, or the, what they called contraceptive technology then. And um, I decided I'd better go to nursing school because I was very interested in women's health and community health, but I didn't have the healthcare background. So that is what launched my interest in going to nursing school here in Maine. And what did you do with your degree? You went to the University of Maine at Augusta. I did. I got a two-year degree, uh, what they call an ADN, an associate degree in nursing in 1978 at UMA. And I initially worked in uh, labor and delivery and then the nursery at Parkview Hospital in Brunswick, which at that time was where all the babies were born. And um, then I worked at an outpatient program for women in substance abusing families, so I learned the world of substance abuse and addiction and rehab then, and I did that for those combination of those things for a couple of years before an opening occurred at the Maine Women's Lobby, and so I worked for two years uh, in the 110th Maine Legislature uh, in Augusta, and it was totally on the job training. I'd never done that before. A little bit of advocacy on um, pro-choice issues, but I really learned OJT. <laughs> well, tell me about that. What what types of things did you learn, and what what was your essential position? I think one of the fun things to talk about is the biggest thing I learned uh, when I went to work for the Maine Women's Lobby is not to make assumptions about a person's policy positions based on the party they were in or perhaps uh, 
the rural or urban area they were from, or even the committees that they were assigned to. But if I did my homework, I could find that perhaps a very conservative legislator from a small town in Maine would be very strong on uh, smoking-related issues and health-related issues. And if, if I did my research, I could uh, gather advocates and um, allies from a broad range. I worked very hard to be a nonpartisan lobbyist, even though I work for the Maine Women's Lobby, which many people considered pretty liberal because women having an advocate. Um, but it was really important to reach out always to what we call both sides of the aisles, Republicans and Democrats and, in, and independents. Um, and um, whenever I worked on legislation, I made sure that we had a good basket mix. So what were some of the things that you saw working um, in education or in healthcare as, as issues for women and children that have continued on into this day? I think access to health care, access to housing, access to nutritious food. Um, I actually worked for a short time during nursing school for the women, infants, and children known as the WIC program. It might have a different name now. I can't remember. But um, so I think as, um, access to basic life needs was 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 and remains my biggest concerns. You have an interest between the intersection. Um, you have an interest in the intersection between nonprofits and philanthropy. What does that mean? Well, in in my work over the last specifically six years, having my own one-person company um, and working with nonprofits, and as you know, nonprofits are always looking for funding and uh, ways to grow and. Uh, more predictable streams of funding. So the organizations that I've worked with and for and advised, um, in addition to doing fundraising events, which are a lot of fun, have been pretty busy in the grant writing world. And it takes a lot of time and a lot of work as they reach out to foundations for grants. And it's I've, I, I wish it were an easier connection um, I, uh, between foundations, funders, donors, but not individual donors, really the foundations um, and family foundations and organizational foundations. Um, I, I would like it to be easier. I would like I would like for nonprofits to not be constantly churning out long grants and kind of banging their head against the wall and trying to meet deadlines. I, I have a hope that uh, foundations will make it easier, uh, express more clarity in their, in their requests for proposals and in their grant applications. I think I would like to see more personal interactions, meetings between um, an applicant organization and a foundation or even group meetings where they explain in a room of people, and I've been in those rooms, um, what they're hoping to fund this year or this year and into the next year, and that it be more of a partnership and an alliance than a kind of an us and them. And I know that uh, there are people in the foundation world who aren't happy to see me say that, but I, I really would like it to be more uh, more friendly, softer, uh, less of a divide. So because I don't have that much of a background in the funda foundation world, and I'm interested in what you just said about people not being happy to hear you say that. Is there that much of a divide that people would like to keep it separate? or Not, not all foundations, but uh, sometimes I feel like the foundations are kind of holding, holding their funds and holding 
their priorities close to the chest, and I wish it were a little more open. I think it would be a lot easier for nonprofits if before they went and wrote the applications, they had a much even clearer. And I'm pretty sure that foundations believe, and I don't mean to sound critical, that they are quite clear in what they're hoping to fund and what their priorities are and what the the individuals who uh, built the foundation are looking for. I'd like to see it even more open. In the work that I've done with nonprofits, part of what I noticed was that a lot of time can be used to write these grants and maybe go after things that aren't a great fit from the foundation standpoint anyway. Is that one of the things that you're talking about? Well, I, I can give an example. I, I, I was approaching a foundation where I happened to know the foundation administrator, and I told them that um, my client would be very interested in applying. And the foundation administrator was very clear with me and said, you know, Mary, I can't take this organization to the family, to the decision makers, because your numbers, their numbers, your client numbers are just not big enough, deep enough. And it was like, thank you. This is going to save a lot of time. On the flip side, I asked that person if we could come meet with them and maybe they would learn a little more about the organization. So we did go and meet with Uh, the administrators of the foundation, and although the foundation that I had reached out to couldn't fund us, it turns out there was a smaller foundation within that larger family that was interested and did fund them, did fund the client. So if we get a chance to meet personally and paint the picture of who we are and what we do, I think anecdotes go a long way. There might just be opportunities that we don't know when it's black and white on paper. You and I worked together on a project for Safe Passage, a book called Our Daily Tread. This was a few years ago, raising some money for that organization that was founded by Hanley Denning. And when I was working with Safe Passage, one of the things I learned is that um, increasingly people are asked to put their put their numbers out in front. They donors really want to understand that what they are doing is making a difference. They want to see some progress for their investment, a return on their investment, essentially. This feels like a shift from what perhaps it once was. What's your observation? Well, I'm doing some research into that now and trying to educate myself more into what some people are calling the new philanthropy or the new face of foundations. And I think there is a greater desire on the part of the funders, the foundations, to be more involved, more integrally involved, more even physically involved, whether it be by site visits or um, other ways to, to, to have a much more hands-on understanding. And I'm in the process, Lisa, of trying to educate myself more. The Ford Foundation is doing some new work, and um, some of the major national uh, philanthropy information and philanthropy um, advocacy organizations are 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 doing some some soul searching and also sharing of what they're going to be doing in the future. So hopefully that will be um, terrific and more helpful. It's I know it's a challenge because I know um, we all would like to believe that what we're doing is making some positive progress in the world or the money that we're putting into something actually is going to give us a return on the an investment. But having worked in healthcare for quite a while, sometimes that lead time is very long. Sometimes you don't really know if you're actually impacting 
the state of someone's health for quite a while. And I think that's been part of the frustration that I have seen is not just healthcare, but sometimes education and other related fields are, are the same way. I totally agree with you. I, I think it's hard, and, and, I, and that's why I'll go back to what I said a minute ago, which is that I think personal interaction, personal meetings between funders and organizations, eyes-on, hands-on, anecdotal information, would hopefully be reassuring to foundations in, in that they would trust that where their money is going to go is going to make a difference. It might take two, three, four, five years that they're not going to get cold, hard data in the short run. Because another thing is that nonprofits have a hard time collecting data. They're service providers, um, and they're not statisticians necessarily. And I've run up against this too with clients where the funder wants a lot of data, pre-testing, mid-testing, post-testing, whereas what you have is teachers who want to be with the clients and with the students and, and, and also not intimidating the students that all they're going to do is have tests pre, mid, and late. So it's a conundrum, and um, I, I guess it goes back to what I said maybe a few minutes ago. It would be great if there could be increased trust and maybe that comes by developing personal relationships, which is we all know is important. We're fortunate to live in Maine where, where we see each other coming and going and we know each other and we get to talk about each other's children and families. And that's what builds up trust because if we know each other and we know each other's background, we're going to be honest with each other. And hopefully the honesty leads to trust. Well, I completely agree. And I, I think what I have seen also is that... Um, sometimes having those added layers which are supposedly to create objectivity so that you can actually see things you can make objective comparisons say um it it sometimes backfires so to have so many layers between person and person you know the person who's on the ground doing the work and the person who might be able to fund that work to to say well first we want all of your paperwork to first we want all of your numbers and i'm not sure that people are always able to give enough of an elevator speech to, to draw in a potential funder. Yeah, that is that is a real challenge, whether it's the mission statement, the elevator speech, um, and also speaking the language of the funders. Sometimes the people that are making the decisions are my age and older, and, ser and the service providers are millennials or younger, and there's a, there's a, bit, of a, there's a, there's a bit of a language lingo um, gap that needs to be broached. It's interesting you would say that because I have I have thought the same thing recently. Um, I, I believe that a lot of the same people have a lot of this is maybe going off on a little bit of a tangent, but I, I believe that many people of the last few generations have the same goals, which would be um, gender equality, say, or racial equality. But what I'm hearing when I talk to people who are perhaps younger than I am is a whole different set of terms that are being used. And then the people that I see who are perhaps a little older than I am, they want exactly the same thing, but that's just not what things were called back then. So um, I had a conversation with somebody recently where she talked about dealing with gender as something other than being binary. And I thought, wow, that's fascinating. Nobody's ever said that before. But I think that that was just part of w what she had been educated with. Yeah. And, it, and I don't think people that are my age or older have any particular quarrel with the concept. It's just not necessarily the way that they know how to speak. We need to be reminded what that means. That You're right. We know the concept, but binary. Stop and think, what does that mean? Not just male, female, for example. 
Yeah, and it's interesting to see the evolution. It's interesting to see the things that, um, you know, gender issues or racial issues. You know, these are things that we've been working on now for decades. Mm. But Too long. <laughs> yeah, absolutely too long. And we've also seen good things happen. But sometimes over time, the, the historical perspective gets lost. And I, think, I, and I don't know it's necessarily the young that have lost the historical perspective on some of these things. Sometimes it's older people, too. I think the young don't realize a lot the history, don't understand what happened in the women's movement, what happened in the civil rights movement that we're, I feel like we're still in the middle. Um, because if you, if, you, if you think about it, so many young men and women now have parents who are doctors and lawyers, whereas when I grew up, I don't think I knew a female lawyer. I may have known one female physician, whereas the students that are in college now, for example, they they didn't grow up where opportunities were limited. Uh, frankly, maybe boring for your listeners, but when I went to college, the opportunities for women were to be a teacher, a social worker, a nurse. At that time, there were no nurses in my family. I wasn't sure what social workers did or whether I could do that, but the women in my family were teachers. So that was what I where I, you know, that was my direction, and I enjoy, and I, that was sort of, I, I kind of felt I could combine social work and teaching way back in the 60s. Um, and then I, when I was in college, I know one young woman who went to law school and two young women in, who went to medical school. And just the, the time lag between my time and your time when I bet you weren't the only woman in your medical school class. No, I think we were just under 50%. And and that was in a period of 20 years. So so then the people 20 and 40 years younger, they don't realize um, the evolution of opportunity. Well, I'm glad we're talking about this because you and I both have children who are in college. I have two kids in college. You have one and one who's graduated, and then you have three older stepchildren. Right. Um, and... I spend a lot of time talking with my college age, specifically my college age daughter, because she's interested in gender issues, about um, about what it means to be female in this world, to work and to also have children. And actually, I speak with my son about it too, but just in a just a different way because his his thinking on this is different. And I think for her, for my Abby, to not quite understand the practical nature of being married to someone and raising children while you are simultaneously trying to explore your own career. I think there is the ideal situation where male and female, each person gets to have their path and somehow the children get raised along the way and the household continues. I think that that's great, but there's a lot of compromises that occur along the way. And I think for me to talk to my daughter about, yes, when I was your age, I felt absolutely certain that gender issues would look a certain way and that our household roles would be a certain way. And over the last 22 years of raising children, I have realized that sometimes practical gets in the way of ideal. Well, I just was having this discussion with Angus the other day. I'm not sure that motherhood has changed, but fatherhood has really evolved. And I, I think it's really interesting as I watch um, my own grown stepkids and, and their families and, and dads. Uh, dads are much more involved. Dads have taken on a lot more responsibility. Dads understand. Uh, certainly different than the way I grew up and even in the intervening years. So, um, yeah, I, 
I think it's great that you're having that discussion with your with your kids. It's actually a really fair point too about the fact that as as males, they it's not as if young men have been. Um, it's they're actually being asked to do more than maybe they once were when they were just the breadwinner of the family, and and I don't know that we ever. And I know women are being asked to do more too, but that's always been kind of recognized that if you're going to go into the workforce, then you're still going to be expected to raise the kids. But now it seems as though, yeah, young men, not only are you going to be the breadwinner, but you also are going to be expected and want to be part mm-hmm. of your children's lives. And so that just really changes the dynamic within and I, a family. It's, it's kind of interesting to think about how role models have evolved of, of who and what is mom and who and what is dad. And... Uh, who's adjusting to it more easily than others. It's fun to watch. I agree. So you are your own person and you're doing your own thing, but a big part of what you were asked to do while Angus, and actually still is in office, but while he was in office as the governor, was to to be a connector with him. You know, you were by his side a lot, which required a lot of your own energy, and you were raising your children. What was that like? It seems like it must have been kind of crazy at times. Well. Um, when Angus began as governor in 1995, Ben was four and a half, and Molly had not yet arrived from India. So the kids, so she she came that February, and so my kids were little, and that was really my priority. Uh, but but there was this amorphous thing called first lady, and I really didn't know what that meant, and the. The, the governor's wife prior to Angus's election was, of course, Senator Olympia Snow, and she had been in Washington as congresswoman and senator. So um, there wasn't a lot of immediate history. She did a lot of stuff on weekends. I did bump into the wonderful Polly Curtis, who was the, the wife of Governor Curtis, and I asked her before Angus was sworn in, how do you do this? And she said, just be yourself. And that was incredible, amazing advice, and it was quite a relief. So actually, Lisa, what I did is I said, I don't really, there's no book about being the First Lady of Maine. I don't really know what to do, but my kids are little. So what I did was I sort of backed into it. I would go up to the to Augusta to Blaine House on Fridays and do things there, whether it was traditional nonprofit gatherings or teas or meetings with people who wanted to have something that the First Lady was involved in. So I would take the kids up with me. Um, on Fridays, and the Blaine House staff would help me kind of oversee them. And so um, as they got older, I went on Thursdays and Fridays. And as they got a little older, I went on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. And when, when I felt they were old enough and I could get child care, I would do, you know, stuff out of the house. So after the eight years, they were, they were both in elementary school full time. So by then I was doing more and more, and it was fun. We did a lot of I'm I'm pretty proud of the the issues that we were able to highlight while Angus was in office from the office of the first lady, although they never called it that. But you know, breast cancer awareness and um, underage drinking awareness and uh, children's literacy, and then the fun and easier stuff: advocacy for Maine arts and crafts and Maine artists and artisans. And uh, so some stuff was easier than others, and. Um, but I met a lot of wonderful people, and I traveled the state, and I did a lot of reading to kids with my Dr. Seuss hat on. So I sort of it was it was one of those again. It was on the job training, but Maine is a great place, and it was a privilege 
to meet so many great people. I think that's actually how I first met you, though you may not remember this, is through Raising Readers, which is um, a literacy organization um, that is done through Maine Health and actually statewide It's now. an incredible, incredible program. My grandkids here in Maine each has the 12 books that they got over five years. Yeah, I think doctors and healthcare providers have been very successfully putting And they've stuck books, with it. Yeah, in it's the hands so of great. children. Yeah. yeah, which does kind of speak to what you're saying, that sometimes you, you plant a seed and you don't really know if it's going to grow or not, but there is often some longitudinality to the actions that you take, no matter where you are, whether you're working as an advocate at the state house or whether you're working as a nurse or an educator or whether you're doing whatever this amorphous first lady role is. So I guess what I'm wondering, you made a very conscious decision, I believe I'm remembering this correctly, that to um, raise your kids in Brunswick, in your own house, not in the Blaine house, and really be protective of their, of their lives and not push them out there as being public figures themselves. How did that conversation look between you and Angus? Well, we, 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 our home in Brunswick uh, is in a neighborhood, and my son's closest friend lived literally through the backyard, through the shortcut. The kids didn't even have to cross the street. And it was I just couldn't imagine um, moving up to the Blaine House in Augusta, which is not in a, in a residential area. Most of the homes have been converted into offices. And I kind of felt like... If I raised my kids there, they would kind of look out the window and see Dad coming and going from work, but it would be long days, and, you know, finding finding friends and neighbors and playmates would be kind of starting over. Um, and I really, I, I, to be honest, I, I didn't want to raise my house, my children in a home where they were waited on, where there were um, service 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 people servers um i just i just felt like that doesn't really fit you know this generation and um i so i wanted them to have as much as i could um the same childhood that they would would have had um walking you know walking to the preschool walking to the elementary school um and sticking with their same friends and we were really lucky it worked for us so you had two children that you were raising while um, Angus was in office, and then there was a, there was a hiatus, a non-political kind of hiatus, and you actually took a you took a journey in a in a camper, I believe, yes. which I spoke with Angus about a few years before um, he went back into the public life, and it and it seemed like a good seemed like a good dividing point. What what was that like to all of a sudden go from but we live in Brunswick, it's, you know, a nice little college town, raising kids, first lady, governor. We're just going to take off and see the country. It was wonderful. It was terrific. I, I, I loved it. It was nearly six months of being on the road and being in blue jeans every day and not worrying about how, how's my hair, did I remember my lipstick, you know, can I wear sweats to the grocery store? It was it was it was sort of the you know driving off into the great anonymity was great, and the time with the kids, the uninterrupted time with the kids, was a gift that we were able to do that. Um, from a political standpoint, it was really smart to get out of town and not 
you know, be still in Maine with a, with a new administration and things changing and some things remaining the same and th- some things being dismantled to just get out of town and have absolute wonderful anonymity and be with the kids. And we did homeschool them. We, we did our very best at homeschooling. But I loved the time together. And um, we, we, I was, I was, I was sort of strict about every night. I would read aloud to the kids about where we were going to visit the next day, sort of the pre-tourism thing, and um, being able to see the country, being able to be together, visiting the amazing national parks and monuments, um, was absolutely fantastic. And it was totally anonymous. A really funny thing happened. Um, as you may or may not recall, um, Angus uh, is an acquaintance of David Brancaccio um, from public radio. And um, Angus had met David, who grew up on the Colby campus. His dad was a professor. And before we went, David called and said, Angus, uh, would you consider uh, dispatches every couple of weeks give us a little flavor of the economy of the various places you're seeing. And Angus said, well, that's sort of intriguing. And Angus had been a broadcast person, so he didn't have any trouble in front of a mic. And David said, and I'll pay you $200 uh, per dispatch. And Angus said, well, that'll buy some diesel fuel. That'll be good. So every two weeks, Angus did a dispatch. This is a long story. Um, we were hiking in the Grand Canyon and bumped into a family, hi, where are you from, hi, where are you from, and you know, we're from Maine, we're from Connecticut. They said, oh, that's interesting. Did you hear that the governor of Maine and his family are traveling? And Angus said, really? Cool. And we each went on our way. So we had 100% anonymity, and what was most important to me was that my kids did. You know, they were just, just totally kids. And we, we had a wonderful six months seeing the country and visiting friends and relatives. Angus teases me that I had more relatives than he ever imagined. But I recommend to any family that can pull it together to take their kids on a camping trip, an RV trip. It's the most valuable thing you can do. Um, Have the teachers call me if they're concerned. But just, I just believe so deeply in the importance of family time together. And you can, you can squeeze in a lot of education at the same time. How old were your kids when you did this? Uh, The kids were fourth grade, third grade, and seventh grade. And I think seventh grade is almost the limit. When people ask me about it, I say, the earlier you can do it, the better. Because by seventh grade, you're taking them away from their, you know, junior high friends and their athletics. So I I would, you can do it. And different families have different dynamics. But I would try and do it before seventh grade. I'm, I'm always jealous when I talk to people who have had the opportunity to do this because now all of my children are beyond that age, so I no longer could do it. But every person I've ever spoken with about this type of um, journey says the education and the bonding that you have access to is just something you couldn't replicate in a normal day-to-day setting. I think now what we can pull off with our kids is shorter trips to New York or some national athletic championship or something where you you the kids don't realize it but you're getting some good time with them too (laughs) I agree and I I have had that so I feel like I'm I'm lucky in that respect I'm wondering what it was like for your kids and and I don't know if you ever talked to them about it I suspect you did to be even as sheltered as they were still in the public eye still um, the children of the governor and the first lady of the state of Maine you know, Lisa, maybe it's about time I ask them to go back in history and 
tell me what I was uh, too apprehensive to ask at the time or they were too young to even know. Um, I can I can say kind of a fun story about my daughter Molly. Molly was a senior in high school uh, when Olympia Snow um, was she a senior in high school? Yeah, I think so. Um, when Olympia Snow decided not to run and Angus grabbed the brass ring and decided to run. But before he did, he talked to both of the kids. Ben was in college and away, and Molly was still in high school. And Angus asked Molly, you know, I'm thinking of doing this. Do you think I should? And Molly's answer was, Dad, you need a project, and I don't want it to be me. So that was that was the okay from Molly. And so by then she was a senior in high school, and she knew she would be in college, and actually she was. When Angus was sworn in, she was a freshman in college. So both of the kids, by the time the U.S. Senate came around, as far as the campaign, Molly worked a little bit in the campaign. Uh, ben was doing other activities. Um, so Molly did a little in the campaign, and she did do a press conference, and I was very proud of her. So... Um, and now she's at American University. Yes, she's very happily situated in Washington. Sees so, her dad from time to time, not not regularly, but if if the calendars work. So was there a connection between her dad being in office and going um, down there? M- maybe a small one. You know, she when she decided to transfer, she uh, took a, a personal six month trip to India, volunteering and traveling, and did all of her uh, transfer applications before she left. And um, most of them were urban areas, though. She she mostly wanted to be in an urban area, and so um, there was. It would be nice, I think. Was the think it, would, it would be nice, but it wasn't. It wasn't the the primary motivation. So, before we came on the air, you were talking about an article I'd written for Maine Magazine about my own experience with cancer, and I know that your family has also had experience with cancer, and. And also, based on the fact that you've worked in healthcare, you have that experience. And what I have always known as a doctor, but now really know as a person who has had cancer, that it is a family experience, that you can't leave unchanged from going through that. What has your experience been? Well, I I wasn't married to Angus when he had melanoma. Um, And I know that um, his former wife, who's a wonderful person and a very good friend, was was right there um, all the way through it. Um, for this most recent experience, it, I, I would just say just being there and loving and taking it one step at a time. And I'll be honest with you, um, when Angus was diagnosed um, this last time, I did not go to the Internet. I just, I didn't go to the Internet. I figured I'll be overwhelmed, I'll be frightened, I'll read different things. And even the doctors recommended, you know, and I've sort of heard increasing doctor recommendations on the don't go to the Internet. I just um, I just decided in this case I would be there to hold Angus's hand as much as I could and take a lot of notes and have my questions on a piece of paper so the doctors would know I had them. And I think it's just being there um, and being optimistic. What else? What else can you be? You've got to be. Well, I think that's very true. And actually, even as as a physician going on the internet myself, I remember coming back because I got my diagnosis when I was away on a trip when I was in New York. And then I was on my phone immediately looking at, you know, what does this mean? And what are the statistics? And, and I actually came out of looking on the internet so profoundly discouraged because there wasn't really a clear answer. And I wanted a clear answer. So that was certainly one of the drawbacks was to say, you know, this this may or may not apply to you. And there is this uncertainty that we can never get our arms around when it comes to 
diseases like cancer. So I, I think that that's an interesting observation that you would have. And really, this is what people, what I found was people wanted to, they wanted to do something because they, they felt like that if they could just do something, then somehow it would make things better. Um, and the best thing that most people did for me was just to say, hey, we're, we're here, you know, I want to go for a walk. Do you want to do, do you need some soup? You know, things that were so very simple because we can't impact, you know, whether somebody's chemotherapy works, but we can impact how their mental mindset is while they're going through something like that. And yeah, I think like being a friend and just being there, I think just being there. I, I If I could just take a minute uh, Lisa, I want to say that Angus was very fortunate twice that his cancers were caught and he had surgery and treated. And I, I'm going to make a little plug, not that anyone's asked me to, to the males in your um, audience to make sure to have your physical exam, yes, your manual exam. That's how Angus's cancer was caught. It's really important. It may not be comfortable, but have that physical exam, gentlemen, please. I actually like that you put that plug in there. It's very, very difficult to get people in to see a doctor. It's much more difficult to get men in to see a doctor and to convince them to have a physical exam. It's um, it's, it's like some sort of minor act of God. So I, I second that, that thought <laughs> Thanks. That, that you have. So you're looking forward in your, in your work and also in um, your, I guess, role whatever that looks like with Angus's current position. What are some of the things that you're really hoping to see happen? Well, it's fun. Um, you you know, the word pillow talk is sort of an old-fashioned 1950s term. I don't know if anyone in your listening audience knows there was actually a movie called Pillow Talk, but, you know, when partners talk to each other at night. And that's maybe my biggest role is to kind of nudge Angus um, I'm I'm interested in what's going on in Washington. I I'm certainly an inveterate news reader and writer. Still get the paper newspaper at the house, um, and listen to the news on the radio. So um, maybe a, a little bit of a conscience. And again, we're so fortunate to live in Maine. People people are sweet. People are polite. But people come up to me. And it just happened a couple of days ago on an issue that Angus has been involved in and said, I really wish he would come out on this one, or I really wish he would change on this one. And that's fine. I'm happy to pass on the message and say, see, this person is saying what I've been saying, so it's not just me, you know. Um, And maybe part of my role is because I read newspapers and listen to the news, I'll send Angus a text and say, you know, someone, you or someone in your staff, make sure you listen to this radio show today or you might want to listen to the rerun of this, or I'll, I do save the newspapers and highlight them and flag them, and he thanks me. So maybe I can just be sort of an unpaid staffer. (laughs) And then what about your own work that you do? Um, And my own work, uh, in the simplest terms, is I like, I work with nonprofits, and I like to say helping them to move to the next level uh, by connecting. I've, I've learned, and, you know, because of my 43 years in Maine and the various uh, jobs that I've had and that Angus has had, I've had the privilege of meeting so many people around the state. So what I like most to do with organizations or individuals, and I've done some small businesses, um, is brainstorm on, you know, give some fresh ideas or some new outlook and then connecting people. So I hope I can continue to work with nonprofits and connect them to 
individuals and other organizations that can make a difference and help them grow or change. And it might mean growing, changing, merging, having a different look. Um, but I, I like the challenge of helping somebody move or an organization move ahead. Having been involved with social causes pretty much the entirety of your life, going around and fundraising for the Red Cross and the Red Feather with your mother, what are some um, things that you believe still need to happen? What are some social changes that you're still really hoping will move forward? I'm really glad you asked. Um, I'm very concerned about hunger. The current uh, appropriate term is food insecurity, and I understand the definition. I've uh, been to presentations. I'm very concerned about hunger. I'm very concerned about housing. I'm concerned about access to health care and affordable education. Um, those are the, those are the big ones that that I um, you know access to education. Kind of moving backwards, access to education, safe housing. It just stymies me that we that we can't figure out a way, and I'm sure people in your audience know the way, but to have more affordable housing in Maine, I'm, I'm troubled by homelessness. It, I'm ashamed that we're still struggling with homelessness, and I applaud the work of the organizations like Preble Street and others that are doing everything they possibly can, but it just, you know, it's, it's really worrisome. So I'm sort of repeating myself. And um, I've learned a lot about, you know, veteran services, and I hope we can do more and do better to address th those individuals and their families that have served our country. I would agree with you. I, we've had people on to talk about homelessness, and as someone who's lived in Maine most of her life, I have, it, it really saddens me to see the number of people, just in just Portland alone, but even in other parts of the state who very clearly don't have access to a stable home environment. And um, and having worked with Share Our Strength and spent time with John Woods and um, the No Kid Hungry campaign, it, it really it's, it bothers me. It bothers me that we've, we've come to this place and we're so far along in so many areas, but some very basic needs are not getting met. Why do you think that is? Oh, uh, why do I think... Um I think maybe it's hard to build affordable housing. Maybe we have too many regulations. Maybe we have too many layers. Um, maybe the, the banks can loosen up or the federal agencies. But, you know, obviously you need money to build structures. Um, and, you know, I just wish there could be a way to speed along the processes. Um, Lisa, if I'm going to if I may interrupt both of us, uh, I'm also very troubled and saddened um, by the addiction crisis in Maine, and I'm stand ready if anybody can find a role for me to step up and help. Um, between once I worked in a substance abuse agency and I represented substance abuse agencies at the legislature, I've mentioned to a couple of people. I don't know if there's any role for me, but you know, I besides shouting from a rooftop, you know, more treatment. <laughs> more understanding, um, you know, I, that, I'll add that to my list of things that I'm concerned about in my jerky conversation. <laughs> well, people who are listening, if you need Mary Herman to help you work on yeah. addiction issues, yes. she's ready. I, I, wish, I wish I could do something. What type of world do you hope that your children and your grandchildren will grow up in? A safer world. 
Yeah, I'm concerned about guns too. I'm going to a luncheon tomorrow uh, related to the new referendum and I serve on the advisory committee about gun safety. It's a, it's a touchy topic in Maine um, and we're lucky so far that we haven't had Mary's season. knocking on wood over here. Yeah, um, but, I, but I hope we can, uh, I, you know, I hope we can do something about uh, gun sales in Maine. And one last question. I know you worked for quite a while on the Wayfinder School, which was the community schools, and actually the part of the reason that we were able to get you in is through a connection that we had with Emma Wilson, who also worked Who at I Wayfinder. worked with and yes. is a dear friend. And also with our now food editor, Karen Watterson. Emma's at Art Collector Maine. Karen is at, um, she's the food editor here for Maine Magazine. You did a lot of work with them over a span of time, and given the number of organizations that held your attention, what was it about that organization that kept you interested? I loved working with Wayfinder Schools, which, as Lisa knows, is the merged organization of what was Opportunity Farm in New Gloucester, a 300-acre, 100-year-old organization um, treating at-risk boys primarily and then eventually girls, and Community School in Camden, which is nearly 50 years old, also working uh, to support kids to complete high school um, in an expeditious way. And that it was just, these are great kids, these are good kids who've struggled for a number of reasons. It could be family dysfunction, it could be geographical distance. Uh, there's also the Passages Program, which serves uh, pregnant and parenting teens, which I love. Um, helping those young moms who want to complete a high school education because they want to be an educated person so that their child can have a healthy life. So I, I, I believe, I, I love what Wayfinder School stands for as far as helping kids complete a high school education. Uh, many people say that your high school diploma is your first ticket. And if you have that diploma, then you can go on to the next challenges in life. Um, but the students at the school learn a lot, do a lot more than academic education. They learn how to be independent citizens, and that's really important as they're launched into Maine. Well, I said I was going to ask one more question, but this is really the last question, and that is, what do you do for fun? I've uh, been skiing this winter. I got new skis. I took a ski lesson, um, and I'd have to say as a plug for Sugarloaf, if, if I may, because my son works there, and I know how hard they've been working. Uh, they worked really hard to make those trails work, and as a sort of a very middling, low-middling skier. So I like to ski, and um, I love doing yoga. I've, I've, I say to people, I, I guess I'm addicted. I can't explain why, but there's something about the opportunity to go to a yoga class, and Angus will say, well, why can't you do it at home? And I'll say, well, I can do it at home, but in yoga class, I'm in that room for one purpose, and there's no interruptions and no dog licking me. Um, so I, I, I'm able to, and be with family. I, we, we, uh, we love being together as a family. We watch football games together on Sunday afternoons. And uh, I try and take, uh, help my daughter-in-law a little bit and take, take care of her, watch, watch my grandkids in Portland um, as often as I can. So I think fun is being with family. How can people find you as part of uh, Mary Herman Consulting? What's the best way to reach you? Um, let's see. I have a LinkedIn page. You can find me, Mary Herman. I have a website, maryjherman.com. Thank you for asking, maryjherman.com. So website that Nancy Marshall Communications staff did a great job on. I did not do my website. I did not do my LinkedIn page. So perhaps this is a plug for that other organization. Um, 
And so MaryJHerman.com is probably the best, or find me on LinkedIn. And I'm in Facebook as a person, not as a business, um, but not the imitation Mary Herman. The Facebook that I am is the high school picture, black and white, of Mary J. Herman in high school with a headband. Uh, there's an imitation without a picture. So if you're looking for me on Facebook, I'm, I'm, I'm Mary J. Herman, black and white. Very good. We've been speaking with former First Lady Mary Herman, who is the principal at Mary Herman Consulting. I really appreciate your coming in and spending time with me to get today. It's been really great to get the, the update on your life. Well, thank you for asking me, and thank you, Spencer. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough, and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaME.com for more information. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by MacPage, an accounting and management consulting firm that believes the path to success is paved by their ability to build lasting, meaningful relationships with their clients. MacPage, accessible, approachable, and accountable. For more information, go to macpage.com. You have been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 234, First Lady. Our guest has been Mary Herman. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love, Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love, Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo. I hope that you have enjoyed our first lady show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Here is an excerpt from a great interview we had with Shana Reddy of The Ropes. We'll be featured on an upcoming show. Did it help that you had parents who were doing their own thing, they had their own business, and now you have a husband who also is an entrepreneur and he has his own business? Did it help to be surrounded by other people who were able to show you that it was possible if you believed in yourself to move forward? Yes, definitely. Um, although I would say, you know, my my husband has a um, a lobster business with his brother here in Maine, Ready Seafood, and that, and then my parents in the old Ford Inn. That those are very different than what I do. Um, so it was sort of inspiring to watch these people have their own business, um, and definitely you learn um, from things they've done, but my path was very different. Um, And I think that my experience in the cities in New York and in Boston really um, helped me um, sort of focus on the fashion point um, of what I do. I don't think that I just make a rope bracelet. I think I have created a 
um, a style um, with the bracelet is there's a, I don't know how to just describe it. it it's so funny it's it's sort of a look um, that um, Uh, (laughs) Well, I think that's a really good point because it's not – I like reading your quotes on Instagram, but I also equally like um, seeing what you do with the bracelets and seeing where the bracelets appear because um, you will pair a bracelet with – a pair of jeans but you also pair it with something more tropical yeah and and your bracelets actually have been picked up by um media outlets Mm -hmm. around the country yeah so other people are agreeing with you that these bracelets really are kind of the um I don't know, a focal point. Yeah, I think it's interesting. It, it spe- Somehow people can relate to them. It speaks to people. Um, I think because the um, the materials are used are so basic and um, people can just sort of relate. And I think that there's something really nice about um, the sort of juxtaposition of putting this chunky rope bracelet on but having, you know, a little black dress on and going to a cocktail party it's sort of um you're dressed up but you're not forgetting who you are or you're um you're making a statement with this you know sort of chunky piece of jewelry that um is nice I think (laughs) well it's very main yeah I mean it's kind of the whole I've been astounded by how popular bean boots and flannel shirts have become over the last few years I mean because I grew up wearing these I was also a child of the 80s Mm -hmm. that's just what we wore but it wasn't because the rest of the world wore it Mm -hmm. there's something that's very grounding about Maine and how we choose to live our lives and it doesn't mean we can't be fancy no we're just kind of this interesting combination we can wear our little black dress and our bean boots and our rope bracelet yes um yeah it's true uh I think there's something really nice and rugged about Maine, and you have to sort of, um, I don't know, I call it Mainerize. I always think, you know, I look at all this fashion stuff, and I'm like, well, would that work in Maine? Mm, I don't know. You know, um, definitely if I were still living in a city and going out to these fancy parties, I could wear that. But it's like, you know, you have to think about what I'm doing here in Maine and and, um, whether or not um, that's going to work with your look. (laughs) Yeah. But your bracelets also have some really great colors. I think Mm -hmm. I bought the first um, ropes bracelets that I bought were actually in Kenny Bunkport in the little store um, there. And two of them had bright fluorescent colors because I was giving them to my teenage daughter and my younger daughter at the time. So, I mean, you've been able to make really interesting variations on a theme. Yeah, yeah. I love color. I get really inspired by color. I feel like it has endless... Um, possibilities um, you know any way you combine different color I think it, it's really beautiful and um, I like to give um, the people that wear my bracelets like a reason um, to keep buying them and um, you know the only bracelet that I f- am like kind of committed to I feel like is my anniversary bracelet my five-year anniversary bracelet I wanted a bracelet that would go with everything and that was why it was so neutral and it was just the two mixed metals and and that worked and then I feel like that will always be on the line but then the other um bracelets the colors will change through the seasons um 
which I think keeps my customer entertained, but it also keeps me inspired and entertained. It keeps things interesting for me. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Maine Magazine, Berlin City Honda, McPage, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, and Apothecary by Design. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Kelly Chase. Our assistant producer is Emily Davis. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Bellisle. For more information on our host production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, visit us at lovemainradio.com.